Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. We hope that you can come back time and time again. If you will, open your Bibles to 2 Peter, the first chapter. 2 Peter, the first chapter. In just a few moments, we'll look at a lesson from uh, the early part of the first chapter in 2 Peter. Uh, we're proud of our young people that went this weekend, invested many hours and a wonderful time together with Christians from uh, many miles around, peers of theirs, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, as they especially concentrated on the topic of evangelism. Uh, I'm proud of Joseph McKenzie leading prayer tonight. If you'll remember, Joseph led prayer uh, when our young men conducted the service as a result of participating in the foundations uh, last part of 2004. And you know, after he led prayer during that service, he said, I want to start doing that all the time. And that's what that program is all about, is about encouraging our young people uh, to serve God with their life, not just at certain times of the year, but all through the year. And we're proud of him and all of our young people that are making concentrated efforts to grow in Christ. Uh, it's not about programs and it's not about individuals, but it's about us as individuals growing in our relationship with Christ. And let's make sure that each of us are doing that. Uh, we're proud that our ladies had a wonderful weekend and their breakfast was so well attended and such great plans were talked about uh, and planned for in 2005. Let's make sure that we're doing what we can do. Uh, the opportunities that God gives us, let's give our very all for God in 2005. As we think about giving our all to God, we think about how we see things. And if you'll remember, the first Sunday of this month, on a Sunday morning, we looked at part of Second Peter, the first chapter, and there was a section of verses that we had to simply mention them and move on for time's sake. And, and so now we're coming back to those sections that at that time we looked at it as if it were spiritual lenses, where the Lord says we need to look and we need to see these things. Look with me, if you will, to the ninth verse of Second Peter, the first chapter, and notice the phrase in the New King James that is termed short-sightedness. It reads like this, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted. Now notice that, he who lacks these things. And that's what we're going to spend all of our time tonight on the topic of, okay, what are these things? Well, from verse 9, there are things that if we lack them, it makes us short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. The idea of short-sightedness is to be is to suffer from myopic vision. And we look at a definition of that as we did that past Sunday morning, and it's this, a visual defect in which dis distant objects appear blurred because their images are focused in front of the retina rather than on it. It's also called nearsightedness or short-sightedness. And as we think about this, you remember we mentioned that fish. And the reason I like to mention that fish again because in a sense of us being physical creatures but yet to live a spiritual life, we have to be somewhat like the four-eyed fish. Now, of course, this, eye, this fish only has two eyes. But because of the way God has made this fish, this fish swims with its eyes on the surface of the water. And it is able to see, because of the construction of its eyes, two scenes at the same time. And so this fish is able to focus on the insects, which it hopes to eat above the water, and is also able to focus upon larger fish that might it might become its prey, of course, underneath the water. You know, we're on this earth, and we have to have eyes that see how to live and dwell upon this earth. 
But the Lord says, I want you to also keep a good focus continually on spiritual things. I want you to see further than just this earth. And so in that sense, we have to become somewhat of of a four-eyed creature in that sense. We have to go about our daily life, living on this earth, taking care of our families, uh, working at our jobs, going to school. But we should never, while we do these things, take our eyes off the greater priority, the greater focus, and that is the spiritual things. But now in this passage, Peter is saying, if you don't have these spiritual lenses, you can't see afar off. If you don't have these spiritual lenses, you're only going to be able to see one thing, and that is earthly things. And so the things that could hurt us the most, things that could harm us spiritually, we would never see those things. And so what is it that the Lord has in store for us that He says, I want you to put these things on. By the way, the next slide is just a reminder of what Peter says throughout the rest of 2 Peter. And this is what we actually studied on that Sunday. And that is, if we don't have these spiritual lenses, they could do a lot of things to harm us. But Peter mentions these three things in the three chapters of 2 Peter. He says, we will not appreciate the Scriptures. We won't look at them as trustworthy Scriptures. Also, we won't recognize the danger of false teachers. And also, we won't focus on Judgment Day as we ought to focus. So what are these spiritual lenses that we ought to be putting on in our life? Let's drop back now and let's read verse 5, 6, and 7 together and let's see these and then drop back and look at each one of them briefly, individually. Second Peter, the first chapter, he says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add, we're going to come back to that word in just a moment, add to your faith, virtue, to your virtue, knowledge, to your knowledge, self-control, to your self-control, perseverance, to your perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Now, it's after this list, he says, for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted. We don't want to be short-sighted tonight. We need to slip these lenses on, but notice there's several things. There's eight different characteristics that he says that we need to add if our life is to be such that we can see the importance of eternal things. The word add here comes from the idea of a chorus or a symphony. In other words, it's not one thing. It's the blending of many things. And you know, that's the challenge. The Lord didn't say, okay, I want you to first work on faith. And then after you worked on it for four or five months, you set it aside and then you work just on virtue. And after you worked on it for a little while, then you set it aside and then you work on knowledge. Friends, I suggest to you that it would be pretty easy to live if that's the way it was. If we only had to work on one thing at a time. But instead, he says, add. In other words, the idea is bring in an in a, in a idea of a chorus. Bring this all together at one time. Another has translated this to bring up beside. In other words, you bring all of these up beside each other in your life so that you're experiencing all of these at one time. Friends, that's why it's a challenge. It's so much that God is asking of us, but think about it. God asks our life. He asks us to give our all. And so as we think about these spiritual lenses that helps us to see eternal things, God says, here are some of the lenses that I want you to slip over your eyes. 
the first thing he said was faith. Let's look at Hebrews, the 11th chapter in verse 1, and uh, mention it, and then go down and spend a little more time in 1 Timothy, the first chapter in verse 19. Sometimes we call this one of the definitions of faith. In Hebrews 11 and 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. You know, remember in Romans 10 17, it says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so the faith that we're speaking about here is not some kind of blind faith, but it's a faith that's formed upon the teachings of the Word of God. It gives us a spiritual and a moral conviction about us. In other words, when you go to school tomorrow or Tuesday, uh, you like that, don't you? Give them tomorrow off. When you go to school Tuesday and, and one of your friends asks you to cheat on this test and you say, I, I can't do that. What do you mean? You can't do that. Well, there are convictions that you have in your life. And it's not a conviction that just came out of nowhere. It's conviction because of the Word of God. Because of your relationship with God, you refuse to violate that faith that you have in God. And the same thing in the workplace when someone asks us to do something dishonorable to God or, or dishonest to our fellow man. Faith. We have to bring that along beside us. It has to be a lens that... Everything that we are thinking about participating in, everything that we're, we're thinking about saying or doing, we look at those things through the lenses of faith. Is this something that my God wants me to be a part of? Notice how he also, Paul, writing to the young preacher, 1 Timothy 1 and 19, picking up just in the middle of this sentence, but notice he says, "...having faith and a good conscience." which some have rejected. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. He's starting out identifying two things that would be very positive. Faith and a good conscience. Okay, here's my faith. Here it is, the, the moral and the spiritual convictions that I formed in my life. And then you say, how's your conscience? So my conscience is good. Okay, that means that I have not violated my faith because my conscience is good. But now Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, I want to paint for you a sad picture. He says, I want you to see someone that had faith and they could have had a good conscience, but do you notice the next phrase? They rejected it. In other words, they started living opposed to their faith in God. They started living so that their good conscience became violated. Now let's read the rest of this verse. Concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. We're talking about spiritual lenses. And now he says, I want to show you how some people have wrecked their life. What did they do? They rejected faith. I don't want to look through faith anymore. I want to do things my way. You can imagine that if you were driving down the road and someone immediately covered both of your eyes, how that could quickly cause an accident. When you and I live contrary to the faith of God, the faith that we ought to have in God, quickly our life becomes a spiritual shipwreck. So we add our faith. But notice he continues there in verse 5, add your faith, virtue. When we think about virtue, virtue is moral excellence. As a matter of fact, when you look at just the V-I-R, that comes from the idea of a man or a human, not just male, but of humans, but it's not the word that we would say for the average human. It is the word that we would use an expression to say, it's the cut above human. In other words, that's why the word virgin 
starts, V-I-R. In other words, one is a cut above. In other words, one has kept their life pure. In other words, this has to do with moral excellence. And so when we think about, okay, we add to our life faith, but then we add to our life virtue. In other words, we're going to strive to live our life, not just like everybody else lives their life, but we want to live our life a cut above. That requires something that we don't have just in and of ourselves. We have to have wisdom from God, and so we have to slip that spiritual lens on to say, God, what do you require of me? In other words, it's living a spiritual life, not a carnal life. Let's read a couple of passages. Notice in 1 Peter, the second chapter, in verse 9, as we read this, you might say, I don't see the word virtue in here. See if you can pick out, in the original Greek, the word's here, but it's not nearly as, as easy to pick out in in uh, our English translation, 1 Peter 2 and 9. But you are a chosen generation. He's describing godly people here, God's people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What word do you think there is virtuous or virtue? The word is praises that you'll proclaim the praises of Him. In other words, when you and I live our life the way God asks us to live, we proclaim the virtue of Christ. In other words, we're not the only ones that are virtuous. Christ is virtuous also. Christ is definitely a cut above. Christ has definitely lived His life pure on this earth. And so when we as Christians reflect Christ, we become virtuous. It's the same teaching in 2 Peter 1 and 3. And, of course, this is just a few verses earlier in our text here. And notice what it says. As His divine power hath given to us... This is talking about how we receive the Bible by inspiration. By His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. How did Jesus Christ call you to be a follower of His? Well, one of the things, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but what Peter is wanting us to think about is one of the things that attracts us to Jesus Christ is his virtuous life. If Jesus would have been a criminal, I would say that most of us here would say, I don't care anything about following a criminal. I don't care anything about giving my life to someone who, who, whose morality was so low, was so degraded. Why do we follow Jesus? Peter says one of the reasons we follow Jesus is not only because of His glory, but also because of His virtue. Friends, if we're going to see things the way God wants us to see them, we're going to have to slip on that spiritual lens of virtue because that's the way Christ is. Now, we add to our virtue knowledge out of verse 5. Now, of course, knowledge is that of coming to know facts. It can be horrible if we hinder other people from knowledge. I know with a Sunday evening crowd, this probably isn't nearly as, as um, a needed point to make. But nevertheless, let's still make this point. Do you realize that some of the people today that would even claim to be a part of the church that are hindering the most are parents that hinder their children from going to Bible class? Think how many second and third graders would love to get up on Sunday morning and come to Bible class. And their parents get in the way. Their parents won't set the alarm clock. Their parents won't get up. Think how many would love to come back on Sunday night or love to come back Wednesday night and their parents just won't do it. You know, Jesus addressed a group of lawyers one time 
And not only did he condemn them because they didn't want to learn, but he also condemned them for being a hindrance for others being able to learn also. Let's look at this as we read together in Luke, the 11th chapter, verse 52. He says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. That's a phrase that I need to think about as a parent. I need to think about as a spouse. I need to think about as a neighbor. I need to think, am I hindering anyone from learning about Jesus Christ? In other words, am I taking the key out so that it's hard for them to enter in? This is what he said to them. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. What a shame. You know, to to kind of use a, a... expression, you'd say Jesus blasted them. In other words, he pointed his finger right at them and says, look, you don't know what you ought to know. And when you had the opportunity to learn it, you didn't learn it. And when others were trying to learn it, you stopped them from learning it. You remember how they always tried to stop Jesus from teaching? And people would try to come to Jesus. They would try to turn people away from Jesus. Where am I in all of that? If I don't have the spiritual lens that says, I want to gain the knowledge of Jesus Christ, I'm in the group that's been hindered. Maybe I'm hindering myself. Maybe I'm hindering others. But it's a serious sin with tremendous consequences. And so we read on. Notice in Acts the 17th chapter and verse 11 how the Lord encourages us to gain knowledge about Him. He's writing here of those in Berea, and he says, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They were more noble, because when it came time for the group to come together and worship and study God's Word, they were there with an open mind. When it came time for them to go home, they went home with open Scriptures to study those Scriptures daily. How important was knowledge to the Bereans? We'd all have to agree it was of a great importance to them. What did it mean to God? From an inspired writer, God says, I count them noble. I count them fair-minded. In other words, God complimented them because they had the spiritual lens of knowledge, knowledge of God's Word in which they were going to look into their life. We see as we leave this verse and we go into verse 6 that not only do we add knowledge, but we also add self-control. This is huge. Remember, Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny self. Deny self, you might say, is a negative way to state self-control in a positive way. And so here he's giving these lenses that we're going to have to look through if we're going to be what God wants us to be. We're going to have to slip on the lens of self-control where we discipline ourselves, we control our behavior. And of course, as we're thinking about Christians, it's not that we control it so that we become our own standard. It's that we control it so that Christ becomes the standard by which we live. As we think about this, uh, Robert Taylor Jr., He has a little way of of remembering a good uh, rule of thumb about self-control. And he says, self-control is reason's girdle and passion's bridle. We must have limits. We must have discipline. Self-control is something that the world will always lack and God's children will always practice. It'll make us very unique in the world that surrounds us. 
When we read in Acts the 24th chapter and verse 25, you remember this was about Felix. Paul presented three topics to him, and notice what happens uh, after these are presented, but also notice the middle of these topics. Acts 24 and 25. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Notice, here was the lesson. You know that Paul was a great preacher because it had three points to it. And so the first point in the lesson was righteousness. The last point in the lesson was the judgment to come. Now what is going to fall in the middle of these two topics? You can almost imagine that it might have went something like this. Felix, here is what a righteous life looks like. And here is how everybody's going to stand in judgment. Now what are you going to do, Felix? Are you going to live the righteous life and be prepared for judgment? Are you going to reject righteousness and not be prepared for judgment? He hit home because this man began to tremble. He was afraid because he knew that he was not ready to control his life, looking at life through these spiritual lenses. Tonight, instead of trembling, what we need to do is repent and slip those lenses on and live our life in favor of God. Not only do we add self-control, but we also add perseverance. Still there in verse 6. Perseverance is that steadiness. It's that stick to it It is that staying on a course of action. It identifies victors. As you notice in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, towards the end of verse 1, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But I want you to also think about It comforts the dying. That's a beautiful thought. If something happened to you tomorrow, and you woke up on a hospital bed tomorrow afternoon, and those around you looked at you with sadness in their eyes, and they said, we don't think you're going to make it. Would you be comfortable with that? If you have perseverance in your life, you'll be comfortable with that. But friends, if you have begun your life with Jesus Christ, but somewhere along the way you've left Jesus Christ, that'll be among some of the worst news you've ever heard in your life. Paul knew that he was about to die. Instead of whining and crying and trembling, he said, I'm now ready to be offered. Why was he ready? Because he knew that he had fought the good fight, he'd finished the race, he kept the faith. I need to realize that never once in the Scriptures is somebody complimented because they began and quit. The only praise is for those that continue. Tonight, let's set our life toward God. And let's set our life toward God with intentions of never being separated from God. And if we realize at some time in our life that we have allowed ourselves to separate from God, we'll come back to Him. Because we do not want to be a quitter. Especially a quitter with God. 
But then we add our perseverance, godliness. And this goes into verse, out of verse 6 and into verse 7 both. Godliness is that reverence, it's piety. And notice as Paul writes again to the young man Timothy in 1 Timothy, the second chapter in verse 7. He uses this as a practical application in our life. For example, if we were in a Bible class setting and said, Hey, who in here exercises physically every day? Well, we could look at those that raise their hand. We could ask what you do. Some run, some pump weights, whatever it might be, aerobics. And then we'd say, well, you know, physical exercise has become a practical part of their daily living. Paul uses this kind of context, this kind of language to say, I want you to make godliness a practical exercise in your daily living. Notice how he says it here as we read together in 1 Timothy, the second chapter, and verse 7. He says, but reject profane and old wise fables and exercise yourself, exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. How much good does the physical exercise do? Compared to spiritual life, it's very little. Well, what helps us spiritually then? Exercise godliness. Make sure that we live a reverent life toward God. Make sure that we adore God as He should be adored. That means on Sundays, we're going to be there to worship God. That means Monday uh, throughout every day that we're going to adore God by the life that we live. But not only this godliness that we slip those lenses and we look at everything as it reflects to a an awesome God. But notice, he speaks at the end of two types of love. The first is brotherly love. Brotherly love is that fraternal affection. It's that idea that we are family. Would you rather spend time with some friends out in the world, or would you rather spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ? If you answer, I'd rather spend time with some people out in the world, we really need to take a good look into the depths of our heart. Where is our heart? There's supposed to be a bond between us as brothers and sisters in Christ that's stronger than a bond with anyone else on this earth. We read about this as we read in Romans, the 12th chapter, and verse 10, Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. And then notice where we learn this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 19. This is really a neat verse when we think about, are we really God's children? If so, there's some things that we should have learned. But concerning brotherly love, Paul says to those of Thessalonica, you have no need that I, I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Isn't that interesting? He's writing to them, he says, I don't have to write you about this. Why? Apparently they were doing it very well. Why? Because they've been taught of God. I'm sure that you grandparents can look at something that your, your grandchild does and you smile inside because you know they do it the same way that their mother or father did because you remember their mother and father doing that same thing. And you say to yourself, that's my son's child or that's my daughter's child. 
That's kind of what Paul is saying here. He's looking over at Christians that love each other. And he's saying, that's God's children. We learn that of God. You remember before Jesus was crucified that night before? You remember he went around and he washed all the feet? And then he encouraged them to practice that same service toward one another of servanthood? And then later that same evening he said, a new commandment that I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye love one another. God's always intended for us to care deeply about one another. I think it's a tremendous blessing that we're in a congregation where that love is reflected, where it's obvious of the the care and the genuine brotherly love that's shared. But let's do something. It's towards the beginning of a new year. Let's make sure that this year we work hard to keep those lens in focus and that we truly let each other know how much we care about them. Throughout this year, we don't know what it holds. Some of us will have broken hearts. Some of us will have joy to share. Let's make sure that we share all of that together. Let's close as he closes here, as he says, not only brotherly kindness, but also love. Love is that agape. It's that decision to treat someone as they should be treated. It's the idea of making the decision to do what's right and best in a relationship with one another. This is how Jesus would say it in John, the 15th chapter and verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in His love. And in Romans 12 and 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to that which is good. So in the first passage, Jesus is saying, Here's how you show you love me. Follow my commandments. Keep them. But then he reminds us also in Romans that love should be genuine. Not hypocritical. In other words, not two-faced, not forked, not divided. Our love should be sincere or single. In other words, our love should be for God, for righteousness. And it should be very obvious. These are eight spiritual characteristics that the Lord says if we lack these things we're short-sighted. You could walk through your house tonight in the dark and you'd probably do pretty well unless someone slipped a stool out in the middle of the hall. And if it's dark, it doesn't matter how many times you walk down that hall. You're probably going to trip over Satan's going to make sure that there's a lot of obstacles slipped in the way. Those that are short-sighted will stumble. How are you going to see it? How are you going to avoid it? There's only one way to have these lenses, to see things as God would have us see them. Tonight, we extend the Lord's invitation. If you've never been baptized in Christ for remission of sins, won't you do that tonight? Please don't delay what you know that God would have you to do. 
If you're ready to repent of sins and confess before man that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, won't you be baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins? Take on a vision that can see all the way toward eternity. Maybe you've been baptized into Christ and somewhere along the way you've been pulled astray. Your vision has become very short-sighted. Tonight's the time to repent of that. Come back to the Lord. Slip on those spiritual lenses so that we can see things afar off. None of us here are perfect. But let's make sure that we all leave here forgiven. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.